The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Would you pray with me? Father God, what we seek to do this morning, we are not capable of doing apart from your merciful word. As David just read, apart from you, man in his natural state is one with uncircumcised ears, incapable of rightly hearing and understanding and responding to your word. And that's not a once and for all thing, Father, where at one moment you allow a man to hear It's the whole of the Christian life. We are constantly dependent upon you to help us to hear, help us to see, help us to comprehend, even in the smallest sense, what you have said so plainly in your word. And so, Father, my prayer this morning is that you would continue that work in us. Allow us to hear and see and know to comprehend your glory and your hope that is revealed to us in this text. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ask you to return to your feet one more time, please. We have now moved to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We'll be reading from the first verse down through the tenth. This is the holy and inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 So it is clear from all that we have studied thus far that The Apostle Paul is greatly concerned with our knowing and seeing and understanding the love of God and the wisdom of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the power of God. And his desire in this, of course, is that we would live the whole of our lives to the praise of his glory. And he set out to do this in two very particular ways. You recall from the first half of chapter one, he did this by sweeping us up into heaven and 
giving us there a cosmic view, a view of redemption from the perspective of God, all that he has done to bring us to this place. And then this brought him to a place of prayer as he not just prayed for the people there in Ephesus, but prayed for us as well and then revealed something of God's will for us in that prayer, that we would know certain things. That was his prayer, that we would know what is the hope to which he has called us, what is the immeasurable greatness of his riches that await us in heaven in eternity, and then the greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, the way that he designed to show this power to us, how can we most clearly see the power of God that has been put to work in his children? The place, of course, was in the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And so we really ended chapter one on a bit of a crescendo with Christ Jesus having died yet risen again. Not just risen to the same kind of life, but to glory and exaltation. Taken into heavenly places and seated at the right hand of his Father with all other powers and authorities and rulers and dominion as a footstool to him. Ruling and reigning and us there with him as his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. That the life of Christ has come into us, the church, the saints, the believers, that is he who animates us and equips us and empowers us, that all that is his is ours, that all that can be said of Christ can be said of us, his body. And then in a very real sense, that we fulfill him, having given his life to purchase us, having joined himself to us is not just his body, but as his bride. There's a very real sense in which we could say that he is not complete without us. He longs that we would be there with him. Again, I say we ended chapter one on a bit of a high point, a crescendo. And now he comes to us. You see, he's not, he's not done yet revealing to us the glories of Christ. And he's not yet done showing us the ways in which the power of God has been manifest in and through his church, his bride. His body. He's not yet shifted his focus away from heaven and from the inheritance that awaits us there. But if we're going to truly understand this, if we're going to have any ability to comprehend what this power means, we've got to come to recognize who and what and where we were when this power was first exercised towards us. We'll miss the but God. If he doesn't explain to us who we were when the power of God came and rested upon us. We don't understand the depths from which we have been raised. If we don't understand our absolute inability and deadness towards the things of God, we will completely miss the but God. And so he's got to show us something about the desperate nature of our estate when he found us. Now, as you know, this is not an easy thing to see. It's not an easy thing to comprehend. It's not an easy thing to accept, even for the believer. I, I promise you this. I'll remind you who the Apostle Paul is speaking to here. These are those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus. These are already the saints. These are already the members of his body. These are those who have shown that their faith is sincere by the love that they show to one another. 
And yet still, what does the Apostle Paul pray for them? That the eyes of their heart might be enlightened. Because this is not an easy thing to see. Now, there's any number of reasons why men cannot comprehend what the Scripture says, why they refuse at times to receive what the Scripture so clearly seems to be saying. One of those is fear for what it says about those that they love. If this is the picture of the non-Christian, if this is the picture of man apart from Christ, if this is the picture of unregenerate man, what does it say about those so many people whom I love and yet are lost? In addition to this, it causes them to fear. What does this mean about God? What is this text telling us, not just about ourselves, but about God? And then for others, they just can't see it. They've just been blinded to these truths. And the reality is that this can make men very agitated, even angry and upset at us. They'll, they'll call us liars and, and accuse us of, of twisting the scripture and trying to demand that they see something that God never intended for us to behold. And so it can be very tempting for churches and, and for pastors to say, well, then why touch on it? What's the point? We're already saved. We're already on this side of the thing and dead men can't understand that they're dead anyway. So what's the point of talking about it? Why force men to see things they don't want to see? Why cause all manner of conflict, even within your own church? Well, it's in part because of the text that David just read. You, you heard God's admonition of his people. The, the picture there is he, is he says that from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying peace. Peace, where there is no peace. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. The New American Standard says they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. The NIV says they have dressed the wound of my people as though it were not serious. You understand that as a pastor, as one I told you last week, as one who has been called to keep watch over your souls, I have to tell you the truth. I have to tell you the truth about this wound, about this, this state that you were once in. And for those that are not yet believers, not least of all our children, I've got to speak honestly to them about where they are. Because the reality is, they don't need antibiotics. They, how, why did I say the word like that? <laughs> they don't need that, whatever that is. Or anti antibiotics. They don't need an aspirin. They don't need... They don't need a Band-Aid. They don't need a change in their diet. They don't need more sleep. They don't need to practice some new habits. They don't need a change in their environment. They don't need to revisit old traumas and try to sort them out. They need to be raised to life by the supernatural power of God. And so we can't afford to treat their wound lightly, to pretend as though it was not serious. Because Scripture does not say that they were lightly wounded. Scripture does not say that they had a superficial flesh wound. What does Scripture say? It says you were dead. Dead. Necros is the word. It's used 127 times in the Greek New Testament. Translated here, dead. 
You know how else it can also be translated? Dead. There's no other word. Thank you, Matt. Dead. <laughs> Always dead, as in lifeless, as in a corpse, as in unable to respond or to hear or to move or to cry out or to take steps or to want anything better. Dead. And oh, the hoops through which men jump to try and convince you that dead does not mean dead. The dead means sad. The dead means longing. The dead means mildly asleep. The dead means able to take steps towards God if he would first come towards them. But God says, you were dead. That's the condition of how he found us prior to his powerful working in us before God made us alive together with Christ. You were dead. You'll notice we won't get to it today, but the main verb, this is one long sentence. That's the way Paul writes long sentences. And then the English folks come along, English translators come along, they put some periods and commas and things to make it flow a little bit better. This is one long sentence and the main verb in this long sentence doesn't come until we get to verse 5 and it's God. God made us alive. This is not about anything that you did. You know why? Because you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He repeats it again when we get down to verse 5. It's almost as though he gets sidetracked. He goes, wait a minute. I got to make sure they don't miss this. And you were dead. Even while you were dead, you were dead. Again, I say not sick, not wounded, not merely unconscious. You were dead. This speaks to the helplessness, just how incapable you were apart from the loving and merciful and powerful working of God towards you. You were dead. So what does this mean? What does it mean to say that you were dead? Well, all throughout scriptures, we see any talk of life. Anytime the scripture talks about a man being alive, it's pointing to one who can know and please and walk with God. Isn't this what Jesus prayed in the upper room in John 17, 3? He says, this is eternal life to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That this is life and therefore death must be the opposite of this. The Apostle Paul in the sixth chapter of his letter to the Romans, he says this, speaking to Christians, he says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. The non-believer is the opposite, alive to sin, dead to God. That's the picture that he's painting here. And in large part, it is a positional thing. It's a relational thing. You remember that Jesus in Luke's gospel, whenever he talks about the uh, parable of the prodigal son, what does the father exclaim whenever his son comes home? For my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and now he was found. We use language like this, don't we? Whenever someone has greatly offended or wounded us, what do we say? You're dead to me. Colossians and uh, Colossians 1:21 the parallel to this morning's text it says and you who were once alienated that's estranged alienated God has now reconciled this is an alienation this is a deadness this is a relational thing with regards to who we are compared to God 
I think that the most clear picture we get is actually probably here in Ephesians a little bit later. We get to Ephesians 2.12, just beyond the text we read this morning. He says this, remember that you at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Life is being with God. Death is being without God. Lost and estranged and alienated and hopeless and sent out into the world. That's death. And we see a picture of this very clearly all the way at the beginning in the garden. What did God say to that first man? He said, you may eat of any tree in the garden, but the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil, you may not eat of it for in the day that you do, you will surely die. We know that the man ate. And yet, mercifully, God spared his life. He did not die for 920 years. And yet there were immediate consequences. A spiritual death came upon this man. And how was that most clearly seen? As he was cast out of the garden. He was removed from the presence of God. That this is the picture. We don't only just see, though, that there's a change in the way that this man cannot now be in the presence of God. That he is dead to God. But there's a way in which this man now thinks differently about God. What did the man do as God, who had once been his everything, comes walking through the garden? He hides. Because in this spiritual deadness, he is now opposed to the things of God, mistrusting of God. Calling that which is good, evil, and fleeing from God. So what we see here is that's the picture of what it means to be a man that is dead to God but very much alive to sin. And we see the consequences playing out. It's not long and we see that the man's son kills his other son. The man's alive to evil. He's alive to wickedness. He is alive to depravity. He's dead to God. And then what, what happens is the story progresses a little bit further. We get to Genesis 6 and we read that the intents of man's heart was only continually evil. Because man was alive to sin and dead to God. So God sends a flood preserving just one man and his family. And it doesn't take long and this man falls back into sin. And then we see humanity coming together and trying to make a name for themselves and building up a tower. And we begin to look and we recognize this is the most active deadness I've ever heard of. It's a strange and a perverse and again I say an active deadness. These are the walking dead. And the reality is that's where... Many men can get confused. They can't reckon with the concept of the spiritual deadness. They say to themselves, what do you mean that I was dead? I lived and I breathed and I walked and I acted and I made real choices. Even choices with regards to God and his word and, and his law. And I say to you along with the Apostle Paul, yes, you did. What, look at all the activity that we see from these dead people. Paul says that they once walked, that they followed a course, that they lived among sons of disobedience, that they had passions and they had desires, that they had a mind that made decisions, that comprehended what they saw and then moved in relationship to what they willed. Again, I say they were spiritually dead, not physically dead. They did real things. The problem is, every one of the things they did, it was marred by sin. It was covered in depravity. It was in opposition to God. 
The scripture says that they followed the course of this world. There's a course, there's a pattern, there's a way, a broad way that men walk on in this world. And what is that way? It's in opposition to God. The opposite direction of God. So we come to recognize that this death, it means not only separation from God, but it means a lifelessness towards the things of God. It means a deadness towards all righteousness, that their mind and their will and their emotions, every bit of this is corrupted. That's what it means to be dead in your sins and trespasses. Now you, at this point, if we're asking questions, we go, wait a minute, though, I, I see Christians, excuse me, I see non-Christians doing all kinds of things that look perfectly righteous. Feeding the homeless and caring for their neighbors. What do you mean that everything that they do is marred by unrighteousness and sin and corruption? Well, Jesus spoke to exactly this kind of thing. You remember that when he was delivering his woes of Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. That man can appear outwardly beautiful and outwardly righteous and outwardly doing things that might appear to be pleasing to God, but inside, they're dead. They're spiritually dead. Now again, you might say, oh, of course, that's just the Pharisees, though. Like Those are the guys that directly opposed Jesus. I don't curse Jesus with my lips. I'm not putting Jesus upon a cross. I'm not denouncing his name and claiming that he does his miracles by the power of Beelzebul. I'm not the Pharisees. That's just the Pharisees. And yeah, of course, everything they did was marred by unrighteousness and corruption. Or maybe you can look on the news and you can look at these people that do all kinds of wicked things, murderers and rapists and thieves of all sorts. You think, yeah, those people, of course, they are radically corrupt and totally depraved and everything that they do must surely be unrighteous and unjust and marked by sin. But what about the sweet old lady down the street? You're telling me her? What about my children? You're telling me them? You're telling me that they're so completely separated from God that nothing in them is alive to God? That everything that they do is in opposition to God? I'm not telling you that. Paul is. Look at the way that he talks as you, as you work through these three verses. He says that you were dead in sins, talking to these Gentile believers. And he's saying that we also, we all once lived in this way. And then how does he conclude it? He says that because of this, we are children of wrath like who? The rest of mankind. This is a universal statement. The whole of humanity, apart from Christ, this is who you are, regardless of your background or your testimony. You see, there's some people that... They read about this deadness and they, they can't comprehend it because they were that sweet little church boy or girl. They, they never knew a time when they couldn't sing Jesus Loves Me or recite John 3.16 and they never joined a gang and they never smoked crack and they didn't have some tremendous testimony about a changed life. And so they come to this and they go, what do you mean I was dead? What do you mean I was completely dead to God? What do you mean that everything that I did, all my thoughts and all my wills and all my emotions and all my activities were done in opposition to God, in unrighteousness? Because you don't speak of yourself the way the Bible speaks of you. You've not really embraced and believed what the Bible says about your estate. John will go on and 
Romans 3 to talk about the whole of mankind. He's, he's speaking about the whole world, both Jew and Gentile. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How's that for an anthropology? How's that for a perspective on mankind? And again... It's so easy for men to hear us say these things. Some of you, perhaps, this morning, you're sitting here this morning and you're going, this is typical reformed overstatement. You're speaking in hyperbole regarding the depravity of man. That's what you do. Almost as if we get our kicks, right? We get our kicks punching you in the mouth. We get our kicks looking at these children and calling them enemies of God. Those who are dead to God and marred by unrighteousness and totally corrupt. Yes, that's my idea of a good Sunday morning. But the reality is the reason we can't see it is because we have so constantly been swimming in these waters. Calvin and his institutes, he talks about this. He talks about the reality that nothing we see and nothing we touch and nothing we live in has not been touched by this great immorality, this this human corruption that we've just lived in for so long. But he goes on to say this. As long as we do not look beyond the earth, we flatter ourselves most sweetly. Suppose we but once begin to raise our thoughts to God and to ponder his nature and how completely perfect are his righteousness and wisdom and power. Then what masqueraded earlier as righteousness will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. What wonderfully impressed us under the name of wisdom will stink in its very foolishness. Once, what once wore the face of power will prove itself to be most miserable weakness. The problem is we grade on a curve. The problem is that this is the air we breathe. The problem is that these are the waters that we've been swimming in. The problem is that we have lived here so long that we've gone nose blind to sin. I go down and visit. Amanda and, and Tamara teach the... Uh, they teach the uh, two-year-olds, thank you, uh, and, and, and parents stay out. And I like to go down there and see the two-year-olds. And normally I go down there after nap time. I bring them a sucker. You get a sucker if you take a nap. It's, good, it's a good trade, right? Everybody wins. And more often than not, I come down that hall. I open the door to the two-year-olds, and I get smacked in the face by the smell of stinky diapers. And I look at Amanda and Tamara. I go, y'all don't smell this? They say, well, sometimes you got to go out and come back in. This is the stench of sin. This is the stench of death. We just lived in it for so long. We've gone nose blind to it. We've got no comprehension. We look at a child and we say, look how sweet and look how innocent and look how surely righteous this baby is. And God's word says, no, when you compare it from my perspective, if you would but one, for one moment raise your glance to heaven, Comprehend my holiness and my righteousness and my justice, you will call them dead. So I remind you of what God's standard is. Perhaps this might be helpful to you. I remind you of what God's standard is for a thing to be called righteous. 
You've got to do the right thing in the right way for the right reason. Now, see, there's plenty of men that do the right thing. There's plenty of men that pay their taxes and kiss their wife and mow their lawn and keep watch their language and never get drunk and all the things that you would expect for a man that does what is right. But what is the right reason? You see, Scripture says that whatever, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Scripture says that without faith it is impossible to please God. So the man who is lost, the unregenerate man, the man who is outside of Christ, he does nothing by faith in him. So while he might do the right thing, he never ever does it in the right way. But more than this, what's the right reason? What is the purpose? What is the chief end of man? What is the end for which God has created the world? He says it, his glory. I am God, that is my name and my glory. I will not give to another. The lost man gives no thought to the glory of God. Therefore, he never does anything for the right reason. That this is the epitome of sin, is it not? What does he say? That all his sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Isn't it that we ourselves were supposed to become glorious like God? It's that we traded down. Isn't that what Romans 1 says? We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We have traded the glory, the infinite glory of the immortal God for created things. That's the epitome of sin. So anytime man does anything with an eye towards a goal of anything other than the glory of God, done in faith and dependence upon God, it is by definition sin. And the lost man can't do this. That's the state of natural Man, everything tainted by and marked by and marred by sin. Not only separated from God, but the whole of his person marked by this kind of corruption. And to make matters worse, we were born this way. That's what he says here. All of mankind, listen to the language he uses. Sons of disobedience by nature Children of wrath. By birth. That's what he's saying here. By birth, we were born children of wrath. Beloved, you understand that you were born dead. You were born dead to God and alive to sin. And again, you're sitting here and you're going, wait a minute. He says that we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses. When I was born, I'd committed no sins and trespasses. I didn't understand my right hand from my left. How could I look to the law of God and then rebel against the law of God? Beloved, to speak like this is to completely misunderstand the nature of sin. It's to miss the sinfulness, in the words of one man, of sin. I would take you to Romans chapter 5, and I would ask you to read it this week. When you have time, read Romans 5, 12 through 21. And we've got to keep in mind the context of the picture that God is painting for us here. The purpose to this text is to show us how Everything that we receive, all righteousness that is credited to us, that the whole of our salvation, it is wrapped up in the works of another completely. It is pointing us forward to the imputed righteousness of Christ Jesus credited to our account. What he is not saying there is that Christ has done some righteous things. He has therefore set you free. He puts a seed of righteousness in you and then you work that out thereby making yourself right with God. You all know that. 
You know that the basis of your salvation is not something that you have done. It is completely that which is done for another. You know that the gospel is good news. It's not some advice about how to become right. It's not good advice. It's good news. It's a story. It's a proclamation about what Christ has done. But in the middle of that, he's comparing us to another who is a type of Christ. He compares, us, he compares it to Adam. The picture of Adam's rebellion. Scripture tells us that the wages of sin are death. Scripture talks about the fact that Adam had a specific law that he could transgress. God said of the tree of the garden, of the tree in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat, for when you do, you shall surely die. Adam looked at that sin, looked at that law, he looked at that tree, and he rebelled. He committed a transgression. He stepped over the line. The wages of sin are death. And yet there was no further law given from Adam all the way till Moses. The way to that tree was blocked off. So everybody that came after Adam, they couldn't transgress the way that Adam transgressed. As a matter of fact, they could not break a specific written law, expressed law of God. And yet from Adam to Moses, men continued to die. Why? Well, the answer is two. In one part, we know that sin is sin because of the moral character of God. That it was a sin to murder even before Moses wrote, Thou shalt not murder. We know this because Cain was guilty. Sinai had not come. The Ten Commandments had not been, coven, had not been given. And yet, Cain was guilty for slaying Abel. Murder was a sin because of the nature of God, the moral law of God that had been written in the hearts of men and in all creation. So men were in their actions guilty before God. But there's something much deeper at play here. Because what about those that cannot comprehend the law of God? What about those that don't know their right hand from their left? What about those who have not yet had opportunity to express any kind of evil or wickedness or opposition to God? What about babies who die? The wages of sin is death. What right does God have to claim the life of a baby who has never committed one ounce of unrighteousness? That's the story of Romans 5. He says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. He says that one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. He says by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Beloved, you've got to see this. If you're going to claim the righteousness of Christ Jesus as your own, knowing I have done nothing to add to this, no act of righteousness that I've ever committed has earned me eternal life, then you must reckon with Adam his act of disobedience, his act of sin, his act of unrighteousness, that that too was credited to your account before you could commit any unrighteousness. That as you were born into this world, you were not only dead to God and alive to sin, you were guilty and worthy of wrath, by nature, children of wrath. You say, not fair, fair enough, not fair here, not fair with Christ. You don't like another man's sin being imputed to your account, then you can't have the righteousness of the second Adam imputed to your account. We were all born dead, sinful, wretched, 
guilty before God, sinners by birth because of the one who was our federal head, because of Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says that in Adam all die. It's the only explanation. It's the only explanation, not just for the death of infants, the death of children that don't even leave their mother's womb. It's the only explanation for the universality of sin. Listen, if we were born neutral, if we, if we were born in, in some neutral state, it's all just tied to our circumstances and our situations, don't you think somebody would have made it at least a day? At least a week? At least, somebody would have made a good run at this thing, right? But the reality is, you just walk down the hall, go see those same two-year-olds, and you see it written all over them. If you'll allow me to steal a term from Vody Bacham, they're vipers and diapers. They're not your little angel, baby. You see it. There, there's, a, there's a point in their life when you see that this, this sin is, is given expression. When, when this, this sin that is within them, it, it, it comes out because you, you, you recognize that we've got to completely change the way we think about sin. We've got to stop talking about sin as things that we do. And we've got to start reckoning it as, na- as our nature, our, our disposition. It's a power that has hold of us from birth. That's the way scripture speaks of it. Romans 6.12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies that you obey its passions. Sin is a power. It's a a thing with a dominion and a a reign that causes us to obey. John 8.34, what did Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Then again, going back to Paul, Paul, uh, Romans 7 verse 8. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That there's a power at work within us. That there's a part of our nature. That there's a disposition as we are born into this world. And as soon as we have opportunity, as soon as we see the line, we run over it. As soon as we're old enough to make decisions for ourselves, we make those decisions in opposition to God. Not because of our environment, not because of our circumstances, not because of trauma, not because of what we've been taught, not because of what we've been loved, because of our nature. We are sons of disobedience by nature, children of wrath, born guilty and broken and depraved before God. Now, we're going to talk. It's my plan at least, God willing. We're going to talk about how this works itself out practically because you're going to see that there there are three ways in which this works itself out. There's three ways in which we've got the deck stacked against us as we look around us because there's a pattern of the world. There's a pattern of the world, and as I said, it's in opposition to God. And there's a power above the power of the world, and his name is Satan, the prince of the power of the air, and he too is in opposition to God. But underneath all of this with regards to our own walk is our own flesh, our own mind, our own desires. What you recognize is no man can ever say the devil made me do it. No man can ever say, well, the world around me, if I'd been born into a different family, it would have turned out differently. The answer is the reason that you walk in lockstep with the world, the reason that you follow the prince of the power of the air is because they're going where you want to go. You love the things they love and you hate the things that they hate. As I prayed earlier and as you've heard me say more times than I can count, we're not sinners because we sin. 
We sin because we're sinners. And again, your gut, your gut knows that this is true, man. Your heart knows that this is true. There's that moment in that baby's life when it goes from just an innocent cry, right? Babies can cry without it being sinful. They're hungry or they're dirty or they're whatever it is. But you see, it's almost like you see the moment when that sin finally finds its opportunity. When you tell them no, they look you in the eye and you know this is something different. This isn't sheer ignorance. This isn't just a baby being a baby. This isn't just an innocent cry. That's evil. Recognizing that when they rebel against you, who are they rebelling against? Against you only have I sinned, O oh God. It's the only explanation for it. That's why King David could look around at his life and what does he say? I was born in sin. I was conceived in iniquity. He's not saying that his mom had committed some transgression when she got pregnant with him. He's not saying he was born into the wrong family in the wrong way. He's saying from birth, from conception, I was a sinner. And just wait till I grow up and show you what this looks like. The London Baptist Confession expresses it like this. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposed to all good and holy, inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. The problem with the London Baptist Confession is it was written in 1689. So let me read you a newer translation of that. All actual transgressions arise from our first corruption. By it, we are thoroughly biased against and disabled and antagonistic towards all that is good. And we are completely inclined towards all that is evil. That's the way we were born into this world. And if you would but for one moment get your eyes fixed upon God. If you would for one moment get your eyes fixed upon the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one who walked in all righteousness, you would have no chance, no choice, but to come to that very same conclusion. The natural man, as he is born in this world, is dead to God, alive to sin, guilty before him, looking for opportunity to give expression to the sin that is within them, and therefore man is not able to not sin. Adam had the opportunity. Adam had the ability to not sin. Adam had the ability to not sin. Adam had the ability to sin. He sinned. Therefore, every single person that comes after him, we are born with an inability to not sin. You think I'm a liar? Show me the one that succeeded. Surely somebody. Surely somebody born into the June Cleaver family of this world where the parents were perfect and life was perfect and they had no need in the world, surely they would have made it. And yet, no, because man is incapable of sinning because his will is in bondage. He sins because he wants to sin. This isn't a slavery that he wants to escape from. It's because his will and his mind and his heart and his emotions, they're bound to this. Again, I tell you, Satan doesn't hold a man captive against his will. We are captive to Satan because he's going where we want to go. Jesus was addressing this very same topic with Nicodemus. You remember this? It's there in John 3. He's talking about the same thing, this regeneration, this but God making us alive. He says that truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He goes on to say that which is born of flesh 
is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. In short, what he's saying is if you're only ever born in the flesh, that's all you'll ever be. Unless there's a but God in your life, a unilateral working of God, a powerful working of God, you will always only be flesh. And Paul has much to say about the flesh. Now, let me be clear. There is danger in taking the way that one author uses a word and transposing it onto another. We don't get to do that. It's not good Bible uh, interpretation. Taking the way that Jesus and John interpreted Jesus using the word flesh and demanding that Paul use it in that same way. So go do your own studies and make sure that I'm not twisting the scripture here with regards to how he speaks about flesh. But I want you to listen to the way Paul speaks about those who are in the flesh. Those who are in Adam. Natural man apart from the powerful unilateral working of God. How does he say we live? Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You can't, not just you won't, not just it's unlikely, you cannot please God. Why? You're at enmity with God. Again, this is so incredibly difficult for us to understand. You look at a child, you look at a sweet lady down the road and you say, okay, you're telling me she's dead to God. She's separated from God. Everything in her life is tainted by sin and unrighteousness in some way. She can't not she can't not sin. Okay, I get all that. But you're telling me she's a hater of God? I'm not. Paul is. God is. You're at enmity. You're hostile towards God. Unable to do anything which pleases Him. People struggle so much with this inability of natural man because, again, they're doing all kinds of things. They're taking all kinds of steps. They may be sitting in churches just like this. But I remind you the story of Joseph and his brothers before they sold him into slavery. Do you remember what happened? He probably wasn't acting the way he should, bragging a little bit about the dreams that he had had and, and making clear to them that he was the father's favorite. But you remember what the scripture says? It says that when the brothers recognized that Joseph was their father's favorite, they hated him in their heart and were unable to speak peaceably to him. D does this mean that Joseph's brothers all had their tongues cut out? Does this mean they had a lobotomy of some sort that made them forget all the nice words? No, they were so filled with hatred for their brother, they could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. You've experienced that. And man, as he was born into this world, dead to God and alive to sin, covered in all things unrighteous, completely disposed to sin, that man is unable to speak peaceably to God. He is unable to please God. He is unable to abide by the law of God because he hates him. Because he is an enmity. Because he is hostile towards God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 speaks of this futility of the mind. He says that the natural person, again, by nature, as you are an Adam in the flesh, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them.
because they are spiritually discerned. He does not and he is not able. You cannot understand the things of God. Their foolishness is not the cross foolishness. Is that not what that whole section of 1 Corinthians is all about? It's a stumbling block. It's foolishness. It's a scandal. They cannot receive it. It's foolishness. 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled from those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is right there helping. This is one of those gotcha uh, tactics that people will come to. And we say that man is completely dead to God, alive to sin, completely incapable of doing anything righteous, including repenting and trusting in Christ. Apart from this powerful working of God. They say, yeah, well then why does the bird need to come and snatch away the seed that's sowed on the hard soil? Why does Satan need to come and blind dead men? Beloved, the reality is, as I've told you earlier, because we are heading the same direction as they. That God doesn't do this thing in a vacuum. It's the flesh. It's the world. It is Satan. It is all things conspiring together as we all move in one direction in opposition to God. So we're unable to understand the things of God. We're unable to see the glory of God. We're unable to please God. We're unable to abide the law of God. I think that Paul sums it up well in the fourth chapter, Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated. There's that word again, alienated from the life of God. Why? Why are they alienated from the life of God? Because of the ignorance that is within them. Well, how? How can ignorance make you evil? How can ignorance make you unrighteous? How can ignorance make you worthy of wrath? Because he says, this ignorance, it is due to the hardness of their heart. These dead men are born with a hardened and calloused and a darkened heart. Again, I tell you, we follow after Satan in the world because they're going where we want to go. We see this in John 3 when he goes on to say that the light has come into the world, but the men hated the light. And they love the darkness because their works were evil. It's a question of moral inability, not physical inability, not intellectual inability, not emotional inability. Morally, we cannot bring ourselves to love the light. We cannot bring ourselves to love the law. We cannot bring ourselves to call out in faith to God because we so hate him. We are at enmity with him. We hate God. We love the darkness. We hate God. We love our sin. That's how we were born into this world. We're willing slaves. And so, you were dead. That's how you were born. You were dead. And you loved your death. You clung to your death. You fought for your death. You, you cherished your death. Anyone that told you you were dead, you would fight them. Because you swore more than anything else that you were alive. Isn't that what the Pharisees told Jesus? Free. You don't come to set us free. We have never been slaves to anyone. You do that which seems right to you. You do that which seems right in your own eyes. You count yourself free. And because God allows you to run following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, you think you've won. Or perhaps you call on the name of the Lord here and there. You, you come to church, you read your Bible, you do some outwardly good things, but your heart is far from him. You have so long swam in this unrighteous pond that you cannot even understand what it would mean to be dry any longer. Unless God does something, that's where you would remain. 
And isn't that what the promise of the new covenant was? Isn't that what he said through Ezekiel? That I will give you a new heart. I will remove this hardened heart of stone, this dead heart, this calloused heart, this blind heart, this darkened heart. I will remove this heart of stone and I will give you a new heart. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my ways. Wasn't that the promise? That's where our hope is found. That's where the but God comes crashing into the story. Look, this isn't a fun sermon, right? It's not a fun sermon to listen to. It's not a fun sermon for me to preach. It's not fun thoughts for us to have. And it can cause us to feel utterly helpless if we're not careful. If the people that we are preaching to, if the people that we are evangelizing, if the people that we are praying for, if they're this kind of dead, dead and in love with their deadness, dead and hostile to God, what hope do we have that anyone would ever come to saving faith? What's the point in evangelism? What's the point in sharing the gospel with dead men? And beloved, I can relate to that. There are plenty of times when I've stood up and I've preached and I've known that there were specific people in this church, in this room that are not yet followers of Christ. And I've looked into their eyes and I've realized I'm preaching to a dead man. Our hope hinges on the but God. I think we see a beautiful picture of that in Ezekiel 37. In the valley of dry bones. Coming right on the heels of this promise of this new heart. Now, the immediate context of Ezekiel 37 seems to be a promise that God will, will restore Israel to their proper place. He will bring the people back to life and he will lead them back into the promised land. They've been left. They've been exiled from the land. Much like Adam and Eve have been cast from God's presence in the promised land. Israel, because of their disobedience and hardness of heart, they had been cast from the land. And there's a promise here in Ezekiel 37 that God will reconstitute them and bring them home. There's also a context that's much further out that might be pointing forward to our own physical resurrection. We're dealing with bones and sinew and muscle and things like this. So it's easy to see in this a picture of our own physical resurrection. But I tell you that as clearly as anything, what you see here is a picture of spiritual resurrection. What happens when the power of God accompanies the word of God and it calls dead men to life? I read Ezekiel 37, verse 3. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. I don't think Ezekiel is being sassy here. I, 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 don't, I don't think that he's saying... You answer your own question, God. You're the only one that knows. I think he's saying, God, you're the giver of life. It is only in you that men have life. It's only in you that men sustain life. So God, only you can answer this question as to whether or not these bones can live. You go out and you share the gospel. Will this man be saved? Will this man come to life? Will this man repent and believe? Oh God, you know. Oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. God, why don't you do it? Why do I have to talk? You're God. You know. Why are you sending me out to do this work? Because there's power in my word. He said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Verse five. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. Skipping down to verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. 
And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there was sinew on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. It looks like there's something happening. All the appearance of life, sinew, and muscle, and meat, and the hip bone connected to the whatever it connects to, the whole thing is coming together perfectly. But what does he say? But there was no breath in them. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Beloved, that's what we're doing. That's what I'm doing from this pulpit. That's what you're doing when you're evangelizing. That's what you're doing when you speak the gospel to your children. You're praying to the heavens, breath of God, come that they may live. They don't need new attitudes. They don't need new circumstances. They don't need some bandages. They don't need a timeout. They don't need to change the way that they walk. They need life, and God, only you give life. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they lived. They stood to their feet, an exceeding great army. Beloved, there is your hope. That is what it means to not tend to their wounds lightly. That's why you must see the depths of their depravity. You must see the deadness of their, of their spirit. You must recognize that as these men are, as they are born into this world, you can do all the preaching and all the teaching and all the exhorting and all the changing of their circumstances, but until the breath of God comes, there will be no life. But when the breath of God comes, there will be life. So not only does this drive our worship, not only do we sit here today as previously dead men saying, praise you God that there's a but God. Not only does this raise our worship to the highest heights of heaven, not only does this eliminate all boasting, but this leads us to a place that's anything other than helpless. Don't you understand? Every single one of you have someone in your life that is deader than a doornail and you know it. And they can't hear your voice anymore. And you know it. What's left then? What hope could you possibly have when they won't take your calls? What hope could you possibly have when they won't come sit in church? What hope can you possibly have when it's clear that they hate God? This is your hope. Oh God, you know. Oh God, you know. You pray that his breath will come. And where there is breath, there is life. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, it's not easy to hear these things that your word has revealed. Death. Wretchedness. Depravity. These are not when we're building a mural for our newborn baby, these are not the words that we put on it. It's not the way that we like to consider ourselves. And yet, Father, that is exactly how your word describes us apart from your powerful working. And so, Father, I do pray that you would help us to embrace this, not just for the sake of understanding from where we came, but recognizing just the power necessary to bring us to life. And then, Father, that we would trust in that same power on behalf of those that we so desperately love and wish to see come to life. Father, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.